Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 232, Why the Uncounted Count. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And today we continue our conversation about race and Judaism, in particular looking at a number of initiatives that are being created by and for Jews of color. Today, our guest is Ilana Kaufman. She is the executive director of the Jews of Color Initiative, which until recently was called the Jews of Color Field Building Initiative. It's a national effort focused on building and advancing the professional, organizational, and communal field for Jews of color. The initiative focuses on grant making, research and field building, and community education, and it hosts the nation's first ever philanthropic and capacity building fund expressly dedicated to responding to racial injustice through helping further establish, fortify, and build out the field of support for Jews of color. Prior to becoming the executive director of the Jews of Color Initiative, Ilana Kaufman was the public affairs and civic engagement director for the East Bay for the San Francisco Bay Area Jewish Community Relations Council. She has given a great Eli talk, which is kind of like a Jewish version of the TED Talks, called Who Counts? Race and the Jewish Future. And she's also been a guest on some other podcasts on a little known network called National Public Radio. But this is the one that counts so, Ilana Kaufman, welcome to Judaism Unbound. We're really thrilled to have you with us today. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Lex. It's great to be here. Uh, I'd love if you could start a little bit by just giving us a sense of what the Jews of Color Initiative is all about and, and kind of how it got started, what was happening that, that brought it into existence, and when was that exactly, and how, how, how did the process all work? We started off officially around 2016-17, and it started off not even as an organization or an idea, but of a gathering of Jews of color, really a group of about 12 Black Jews, came together with some foundation leaders and some other Jewish communal colleagues to really explore the question of what are the experiences of Jews of color and Black Jews. Um, we have been in, I think, like four and five and six years now of a really intense, intense run of police brutality focused on black and brown folks. And we know that um, religion in no way protects anybody uh, from race-based violence and being targeted. And 2016, 2017 was another very, very pointed moment in this country around violence focused on black and brown folks. We were invited to come together as a group of Black Jewish leaders to talk with colleagues about our experiences, questions about whether or not Jews of color are safe, questions about our experiences in the, in the Jewish community, outside of the Jewish community, and really trying to understand what's the real impact of racism, um, the headwinds of racism blowing against Jews of color, both in, in the Jewish community and in the larger community. Um, that conversation resulted in uh, the first commitment of funding focused specifically on Jews of color, maybe um, um, in, in U.S. history. I would have to go back and take a look. Um, and, you know, that funding was a first commitment of $60,000 to run our first grant round around Jews of color. At that time, the Jews of Color Initiative didn't exist, and so we created a pilot grant round with me consulting while I had another job. I was working at the Jewish Community Relations Council at the time. 
Um, that $60,000 turned into $110,000, turned into $160,000. And we made a pilot round of grants and focused on leadership development, focused on grassroots organizing, and focused on um, research focused on Jews of color. That pilot grant activity three years ago has turned into an organization. And we focus on three things for the organized Jewish community. We run the country's only philanthropic fund focused on Jews of color. We did about $450,000 in grant making last year. We were scheduled to do $300,000, but the need out there is great. And so we raised a lot of money and turned it back around. And we're looking forward to our grant making activity looking forward. Beyond grant making at the initiative, we uh, commission research for the organized Jewish community. Our first research study was called Counting Inconsistencies. And it was a demographic meta-analysis of Jews of color in the United States. So we looked at 25 community studies that had counted the Jewish people in the U.S. and both tried to glean a sense of how many Jews there are. We also um, developed a point of view about the quality of of communal research and the invitation and opportunity to to ask better questions, to use more modern methods uh, of collecting data, and to use tools that will allow our Jewish communal uh, studies to be more inclusive of all Jews, uh, Jews of color, of course included. And then the last thing we do with the initiative is we get to be part of an educational team out there of colleagues, generally work with like boards and leadership teams and fellowships. And we talk about the data, we talk about shifting paradigms and moving our whole community into kind of our beautiful multiracial selves. We talk about racism, we talk about white supremacy, we talk about Ashkenormativity, um, and we talk about all the things that we get to navigate as a, as a beautiful multiracial Jewish community to make sure that we're strong as we move into, into the future here in the U.S. So when you think about the mission, it's, you know, on the one hand, whatever you said, $350,000 sounds like a lot. It also doesn't sound like so much, you know, and um, when you think about what the goal of all of this is, all of this work, what it should be, I guess I'm I'm curious here to hear that from you, you know, is it? You know, I, well, I don't want to, I don't want to front load the question. I just want to like, what, what, like, what would the better world yeah. be like, I guess? Like, let's close our eyes, like everyone out there, like close your eyes and like conjure up an image in your mind's eye about like your Jewish summer camp or your Jewish day school or your Jewish, your JCC or your Jewish community center or your, your boards of directors and trustees out there. Or think about like going to your favorite local Jewish community supermarket or your favorite um, Judaica shop. Um, or thinking about picking up like an average children's book that reflects the Jewish communal experience. And like when you turn the pages of those books in your mind's eye, or when you think about all those environments, or you think about all the people sitting around the boardroom tables, like in, in general, who we see are white folks. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, the stories that we hear about our experiences are rooted in kind of a like we all came from Eastern Europe. We were fleeing very serious terms, either the pogroms or like the rise of Nazi Germany. Um, all of this is real. Right. Um we all had a push cart. Um, <laughs> and then suddenly we all became upwardly mobile and we helped black people during the civil rights movement and things were just peachy until the rise of this current administration. And that in, then in 2017, um, you know, we started to see waves of anti-Semitism increasing and, um, you know, where are our allies? And, um, you know, so like, and I'm just sort of giving you little nuggets of kind of the narrative story, right? But that's not our story here in the United States. Our story is bigger than that. 
right? And it's much more nuanced that, than that, and it's more complicated than that. The first use of color came to the United States in the 1600s. There's a, there are families in the United States, African-American observant Orthodox Jewish families that have only known the observant approach to Judaism and their Orthodox Jewish identity for seven and eight and nine generations. Every next generation of Jewish babies born in this country is more hued, more Black, more Brown, more Asian, more multiracial, more Latinx than the, the generation prior. Every second, our community is becoming more racially diverse. And we have historically seen ourselves and talked about ourselves largely as white and Ashkenazi. We've done an inadequate job of seeing ourselves as we really are, which has disabled us and hampered us from planning and envisioning and thinking and celebrating in ways that are more expansive, more multiracial, and more in alignment with the reality of who not only who we are, but who we will continue to be as part of this U.S. Jewish story. I'm flashing back to my own high school experience. And I remember vividly, I, I remember a few vivid moments in my life where I had, I don't know, inflection points in my understanding of Jews of color. And they were much too late. That's the, the thesis statement of everything I'm about to say is that um, I didn't have any sense as a child that there were Jews of color. And by the way, I was even in spaces that had Jews of color. Like, That's right. And I just was, I was never, uh, somehow I thought that those people weren't Jews. Um, That's right. And I was never told otherwise. Like, uh, but I, I want to reflect on that. And I'm not saying it's like a my personal feeling thing. Like I could have certainly done better and I'd love all of us to be looking inward on this. But like, I think it's a collective thing where our institutions have really sent this message that, ah, Jewish equals white right. in America and even generally. Um, I'm flashing to high school and I went to a school that was predominantly Christian. It, it wasn't a Christian identifying school, but it was a private school. Um, I was one of the few Jewish kids there and I was like known as I was like one of the Jewish kids who like was kind of into being Jewish. I right. wore a yarmulke every once in a while for some holidays, whatever. Um, and in high school, I started wearing a yarmulke whenever my track team would have a meet on Friday night, um, like when Shabbat started. I, um, and that was actually a whole thing because you're not allowed to have like metal things attached because like there's a worry that it'll fly off and the metal will like... Um, this is a track rule, not a Jewish rule. I just want to be clear. Yeah, sorry. Like, yeah, just a, the Wisconsin <laughs> Athletic Association had a rule where you couldn't have jewelry or like headwear. Um, I had to get permission. I had to do all the stuff. And my coach helped me out with all this. He was really enthusiastic about it. Um, and by the way, his last name is Benjamin, um, which right. I, I was, I, maybe this is good, by the way. I wasn't thinking about Jewish names in high school. So I didn't think, ah, last name Benjamin may be Jewish. He's black. Um, and I, it never occurred to me for one second that he was Jewish. Mm. And then he, after I ran a race with uh, my yarmulke on and I, it was actually a funny thing. It started coming off and I like had to run around the track with my hand on my head to hold it down because it was taped because that was how I was permitted to do it. And he like told the story. He liked to tell stories and celebrate members of the team. And so after this, he did that. And in the course of telling the story, he mentioned that he was Jewish himself. Right. And I was just like, wait, what? And it was a mind-blown moment for me. But then I went up to him afterwards and I remember the first thing I said to him was either, it was some form of either when did you convert or how long has your family been Jewish? Like I assumed it had to be recent. Right. And he said like, as long as, as long as I know. 
Um, and by the way, I learned later that his son um, attended Milwaukee Jewish. His son was very young at the time. He wasn't in high school, but he was literally at Milwaukee Jewish Day School at the time. Like it, I sh- all of all these things were in place for me to come to this conclusion much sooner, and I didn't. And what and to turn it into a question now, it's not just selfish Lex reflection time. Like, why does this happen? What levers are in play that cause people like senior in high school Lex to have never thought for a second that there could be such a thing as a Jew of color? And more importantly, like, how do we change that? Right. I mean, I love that story. It reminds me of I had this job um, where there was a sign on my door that said Ilana Kaufman. And um, my office was situated in a larger office that had a camera that focused on who was outside the door um, as a security feature. And I knew this family was coming to see me to have a conversation and they knew they were coming to see Ilana Kaufman. And I saw them walk up to the exterior door and like check the address and they knew where they, they were in the correct building. And then they walked to the front desk and the front desk receptionist was African-American. And then they looked in my door and my door said Ilana Kaufman and they saw I was African-American and it went like this, like, is Ilana Kaufman here? We're here for a meeting. And then the woman said, yeah, she's just right over there. And I saw these, these folks sort of lean over the desk and look left into my office and kind of like furrow their brows and, and then sort of lean back and go, we're looking for Ilana Kaufman. And the receptionist would say, yeah, 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 she's right here. Um, She's right there. And then they would lean forward and look left and look at me and then pull back. And they literally um, did that three times. And then they walked out of the office again, out to the front door of the the, the building, closed the door, looked at the address again, looked at their note. I could see this all in in the camera. And then they came back in and finally made it into my office. And the first question they asked was, how did you get the name Ilana Kaufman? Mm. And I thought it was such a funny question. I mean, I knew it was happening. Like I knew this family was Jewish just because I knew who this family was. And I, I knew the anatomy of what was happening, which was like, I, I just defied everything they had been taught, every experience they had in the Jewish world. Like I defied the physics of everything they thought and knew to be true to the point where I got to watch them do this ridiculous dance with the address and the name thing instead of just like, imagining like, what if this was really Ilana Kaufman? And so like, first of all, um, we in the U.S. as the U.S. Jewish community have done a terrible job chronicling and then sharing our own U.S. Jewish history. I was at the, um, the Jewish archives in New York City doing some work over there. And um, just in a casual conversation, I said, hey, are there any Jews of color that have been installed into the Jewish archives? And they didn't know the answer to the question, which I thought which, which was kind of great in some ways because there was an opening there for inquiry. And so they, like, they, they went like in my mind downstairs because in my mind, archives are dusty and they're paper. And I'm sure like, they, they went to the computer to Google it. I'd like to look it up for a second, but they went downstairs to the dusty archives <laughs> and they came back and they were like, no, there are no Jews of color installed in the archives. And I know that's going to be changing. But like, if you look at our context, we have done an amazing job of collecting our Jewish history through the lenses of who we think Jews are and who the leaders have imagined Jews to be in the U.S. over time. And so the Jewish community has found itself in this kind of reflexive echo chamber where they go, Jewish last name, and then somebody raises their hand. In response to anti-Semitism, in a response to our community being targeted, the U.S. Jewish community has done this amazing job of kind of blending into the background. 
And there are a lot of costs to that. I know the term is assimilation, but it's bigger than that. Because the costs are that, like, first of all, U.S. Jewish ethnicity has been kind of watered down and reduced into either you're Ashkenazi or you're not. When we know that the picture is so much bigger than that, we know that our Sephardi and Mizrahi family have their own experiences and challenges in sort of a normative cultural space. And then in that terrible job of sort of understanding ourselves in a larger structure, we've done a not stellar job of kind of documenting our history as it truly is versus how we want to retell our own historical story. And so like we have created all of these tools of history. To, I mean, we are, we have, we've covered our own story in so many different ways, but that story kind of tells the same old story, which is kind of Ashkenormative, Eastern European. And that's actually not even the first wave of Jews that came to the U.S. But we sort of tell this story because it um, keeps Jews in a dynamic of being marginalized, um, which is very important because we need people to understand our experiences of anti-Semitism. But at the same time, like it doesn't look at the larger picture of kind of U.S. Jewish um, success access to the tools of, of mobility, like extraordinary college education, um, the U.S. Jewish community having the opportunity to create Jewish day schools um, as a response to integration. Jewish day schools came from white flight. Um, we haven't talked about our story. We've, been, we've done a really good job of telling the story of how we were helpful in the civil rights movement, um, how we helped establish lots of schools in the South, which is all true. But that's not the end of the story. We also were intensely, intensely critical of the Black Power Movement, used tools of surveillance, disruption, and sort of destruction to destabilize the Black Power Movement, which was about liberating Black people and like really centering the experiences of Black folks back in the 60s. Um, so this conversation around uh, centering Black lives is not new. Um, and we've done a terrible job of truly documenting the diversity of the U.S. Jewish community, not only to like understand who we are, but then to integrate it into our educational tools, into our tools of, of, of Torah and text and uh, what we do in synagogues, um, to integrate it into the way we think about Jewish life, Jewish organizations, which has resulted in this very reduced, very narrow depiction of who, the, who are U.S. Jews, which reinforces this idea that there could be Jews, Jews all around us, but we, instead of assuming that everyone is Jewish, because in a multiracial context, like, that's possible. We have sort of left ourselves in, a, in, a, in an arrested state where we assume Jews are only white, Jews only have certain kinds of last names, Jews only look a certain way, and therefore everyone else must not be Jewish. I think the question of how we tell stories is so central to all this and, and something that's so not talked about. Like I've talked about in different contexts, this idea that actually retelling our story so that things hang together is actually one of these great Jewish skills that we tend not to focus on because it tends to become invisible over time because people actually believe the story. Right. And I've heard you talk about this, that uh, first of all, there's all these Jews of color that have been Jewish for a very, very long time. It's also the case that there's more and more interracial marriage and having kids in, in America today. And there's a lot of Jews marrying non-Jews. And so it stands to reason that there's just going to be a lot of more Jews of color in the right. decades right. Like to this come. This is a math and science formula versus like a sociological discussion in some ways. <laughs> right. I mean, I think there's even like a story in the Torah, right, about how Jacob and Laban were fighting about which uh, which animals, you know, will Jacob be getting and the spotted ones or the, the not spotted ones and the, the right. spotted ones turned into the, 
the not spotted and the spotted turned, you know, and vice versa. I mean, this is what happens. You know, it's like the 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 sort of characteristics of of people change over time, and so it's it's almost like, well, when you close your eyes and imagine that story, right? It's almost inevitable that there's going to be this point in time, a hundred years from now, two hundred years from now, I don't know when, when most Jews are Jews of color, and. You kind of think about it that way. You say, "Well, how are they going to look back on on this time?" You know, and and if we know that, and if we also know that it's that that basically the Jews being, so, so to speak, white or Ashkenazi is something of relatively recent vintage, and there was no such thing as Ashkenazi before the Middle Ages. That's that, right. Um, well, you know, how, how is this story going to go? You know, it's just but but somehow people are not conditioned at all and not taught to to look at it that way. And so it's kind of like, you know, whatever happened in the last 25 years is the Jewish tradition from time immemorial. Maybe that actually is something that helps in this particular situation. Right. Maybe maybe if we can do some of this story retelling now, it actually won't have to take 100 or 200 years. It actually can happen quickly. Right. No, I love that. And also maybe if we talk about the impact of racism and white supremacy in the United States, Jews would feel compelled to see ourselves in the diversity that we are. Mm -hmm. Because part of this is, I mean, so you look at Ashkenormativity as a concept. And if you look at it within a U.S. structure of racism, in some ways, like Ashkenormativity is a Jewish expression of at least ethnocentrism, if not like a painful reflection of white supremacy. Because, right? And so, like this idea that we have bought in, <laughs> we've yeah. bought into this reduced identity and then are reflecting it back out is also a flag to us that our Jewish community is caught up in this larger system of racism and white supremacy. And this is an invitation to stop that and step back and go, whoa, we are participating in this too, and we don't want to be part of this system. It also means that we have to ask ourselves, how do Jews who benefit from whiteness benefit from the system? And that's heavy and that's deep and it's hard to reckon with because then, you know, if we move toward a spirit of equity, one has to wonder, like, what do you do with all these unearned privileges and how do you reallocate them in a way that supports the diversity of the people out there? And so I love sort of the invitation that you offer with the question, Dan, and it pushes us to have to grapple with things like racism and white supremacy, which is painful for us as a Jewish people and it should be painful. A lot of how I relate to issues of race, both generally and within Jewish life, um, is tied to my own experiences of growth while I lived in the South for two years. I lived in Jackson, Mississippi for two years. I worked for the Institute of Southern Jewish Life. And when you live in Jackson, Mississippi, and every other block, there's a placard on the side of the road about how there was a, a terrible, catastrophic X, Y, or Z. I mean, name your name your racial oppression. When when there's literally in your neighborhood, this everywhere, it makes it so impossible to deny history that it forces you to learn some things that you wouldn't otherwise. And my experience in synagogues in the South, sometimes because people they know their parents were not on the right side of the civil rights movement, or they know right. like in those places, as much as we who live in the Northeast, like I do in Providence, like to pretend that we're so far better than everybody else. I often think about, because I serve a community in Arkansas for the high holidays, um, like 
there's a Confederate monument two and a half blocks from the synagogue. Right. Do I know if the rabbis spoke out against that? I know I don't. There may have been rabbis at various points who, who spoke about that. I don't think it was particularly vocal. And I have no reason to think that the people involved with constructing that monument or supporting it over the years were not also Jews. I think also in Arkansas, like we've seen those famous pictures and videos of the Little Rock Nine walking into school. And I think in our Jewish heads, we presume, ah, those white people on the side screaming, we don't want to integrate. Those are all Christians or all right. not Jews. Like there's right. no reason to think that some of those people are not Jews. And I'm sure if we dug and looked, but like there are plenty of examples of rabbis espousing pro-slavery views uh, around the Civil War. That's there's right. plenty of rabbis in the mid 20th century opposing integration. Like there's all of these things, and because of this need we have to be in like defense mode and like talk about, it's like we're doing a marketing pitch about Jewish history to to like look at our best sides. We really fall short. And I guess what I'm curious to hear from you to get out of the like what what could be heard as self-flagellation, like. What's, what's that next step? Like, what does it look like to be a synagogue or a JCC or just a random do and take the steps of, okay, I'm either going to educate myself or I'm going to act in the world differently. I'm going to be a different presence. Um, our community is going to be a different presence. What does that mean or look like in your work with the Dudes of Color Initiative? I mean, I love this question. And, and what does it look like? First of all, it looks like stepping back from this moment and not casting this particular moment as like there's so much momentum happening to support racial justice, but stepping back in this moment and saying, why am I suddenly awake now? <laughs> like for those who are sort of waking up to this moment and, and, and catching the high from the momentum, I want to invite you to relocate yourself and wondering like, where have you been? And what does it mean that black and brown people have been subjects of, of enslavement and murder and marginalization for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in this country? Um, how do you grapple with the, the gravity of that reality and reckon with your own, one's own accumulation of power and privilege at the same time? Right. Like when we look at tools of mobility in this country and like, let's take a technical policy one like the GI Bill, which is one of those sort of moments in U.S. history when white Jews went one direction and the community of color had to go another direction. Uh, the GI Bill you know, was introduced at a moment where for the first time, Jews who were white were given an invitation to take a government benefit. And that government benefit gave access to higher education and tools of upward mobility. That invitation was not given to their black and brown colleagues out there. And so in that moment, just like this moment, someone could have said like, U.S. government, that is so lovely of you to offer me these tools of upward mobility. But you know what? We roll as a team. The Jewish people, we have people of color in our community. We're allies with black and brown communities. Like this whole thing around racism, we know what's happening out here, U.S. community, and we are not buying it. Imagine if at that moment the U.S. Jewish community had said no. Stop. This is a tool of institutionalized racism and then an invitation for us to not accept the tool as, a, as just one of upward mobility, but in that moment, the, be, the behavior of accepting the tool reinforced the policy of racism, which is to uh, not entitle GIs who are black and brown to the same resources. It's moments like that, Lex, right, where there's a decision to be made, a level of consciousness to be had, where we have to read the situation accurately. 
And we don't because we don't have the right information. We don't have the right tools. We actually don't know our own U.S. Jewish history. And so like what has to be done, we have to stop crediting momentum and start asking ourselves, where have we been? And what does it mean that I'm stepping into movement at this moment? The next thing we need to do is we need to tell the truth. And it's fascinating to me. Like, it's kind of amazing. Like, we are a people of the book. Like, we're really, really good at capturing story, at documenting things through text. We're excellent at counting people. We've been doing it since Exodus, right? Um, nevertheless, we keep showing up to Jewish communal opportunities to uh, create and enforce policy. And we don't wonder to ourselves, where are the 12 to 15% of Jews of color out there? Why are there no Sephardi Mizrahi family around this table to represent their own perspectives and their own voices? Where are our queer friends and family out there? And we shouldn't be making decisions for them. Let's stop, right? Let's pause, <laughs> take a break, and like get this, get, and invite new folks to this committee um, so that we can do this in a way that's not only more representative, but like far um, healthier in terms of excellent decision-making because we know that we can't make decisions for other people who aren't there to be part of the decision-making process. So what do we do? We have to use data, right? We have to use tools of rationality to inform the work that we do. And it's, and it's amazing to me that somehow we don't. And that's okay. And the absence of like community rigor within a context where we are culturally demand rigor, there's a fissure there and a gap there. We, we're, no one's really critiquing that gap. What else do we have to do? I work with uh, Professor Mark Dollinger, who wrote the book Black Power Jewish Politics. And in there, like, there's a lot of discussion about what really happened during the civil rights movement and the role of the U.S. Jewish community in, sure, advancing the civil rights movements in some way. And I don't want to take away or diminish from the efforts, but it wasn't just like all popcorn and unicorns and rainbows and like things that were lovely for those black people for whom we were trying to help. Um, we have to tell the complexity of our history. We have helped fortify and reinforce systems and structures of racism in this country, and we have benefited from the impact of that and the effect of that while we have also subjugated not only black and brown folks in this country through those policies and practices, but black and brown Jews too, right? And so we have actually harmed and damaged our own people, and we need to come to terms with that. So, I mean, I could go on and on, but the last thing I'd say in response to that question is, you know, we have to make shuva. We have to make repair right? Like we have to get down with what's good and right. Like we have tools, we have tools in Talmud to talk about like when you harm somebody, like if I've taken your eye, if I've cut off your arm and you need that eye and you need that arm to actually do your job, then how do I repair that in a way that has honor? What if we looked at the harm to black and brown Jews, to black and brown folks through a Talmudic lens, which is I have taken away your self-esteem. I have taken away your self-confidence. I have made you feel less than, and it has not only impacted who you are as a human, it's impacted who you can be in the Jewish community, the opportunities to you, and I may, I may have gotten in your way of accessing Torah. Those are some ways we can get started. That makes me think about this story in the Talmud about the basically president of the yeshiva, the you know basically head is thrown out of his job. And he's replaced with this other head who, and then they say, and then he, they uh, opened up, the, they, they took away the guards from the gates. Apparently there were, there were guards keeping people out from the yeshiva, you know, from, you know, which is basically metaphorically, right, the, the real Jewish work. And then they say when they took away the guards from the gates, 
then they have a debate whether 400 or 700 benches had to be added. But the point is, there's a lot of benches. There were a lot of people who actually right. wanted to come in, but for some reason they were keeping them out. And one lovely part of that story is that that the previous head, Rabban Gamliel, he has this sense of unease. He said, and he says to himself, you know, maybe I've withheld the Torah from Israel. Uh, and when when you've been talking about that, like I, I think that you you're generously putting it as a past. You know, we have been racist, but I think it's we are meaning yeah. that it's happening right now. If yeah. you, if you think about twelve to fifteen percent of the Jewish population being Jews of color, that's a million people in America. That's right. that's there right. are a million Jews that are not being. You know, and then he's like, well, where are they? I don't see them in my city. Well, they're not there because you're not welcoming, you know, among That's other right. reasons, right? That's right. But That's um, right. there's a million people out there. And here are all of these Jewish power players, funders, everyone, you know, fretting about every Jew who doesn't go on birthright or whatever, you know, every every Jew who like somehow, you know, is drifting away, right? And can we somehow get them to come to Hillel, whatever it is, you know? But here <laughs> there's a million people that you yet you're not even seeing. Now, one of the challenges is if we label it racism, then people start to get defensive. I, I'm happy to label it racism. I think it is. But it's also a lot of other isms, right? Meaning it's it's because it's not only racism. It's right. it's also that, you know, until very, very recently, that was also the case for LGBTQ Jews. It's an ongoing, you know, maybe white supremacy or Ashkenormativity or better way, you know, because it's a failure to, you know, for me, what the what the issue is, is that if you're so desperate to have every Jew stay Jewish, but there are all these Jews over here who actually really, really want to be Jewish and you're not doing anything, then something is deeply wrong. And that's an ongoing, an ongoing harm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's right on. I mean, and so a couple of things. One is. I was in a foundation CEO's office one day and like they had this very traditional setup for my worldview, which was like a giant desk and they sat on one side of the desk and I sat on the other side of the desk. And then behind them was this like esteemed bookshelf with like all of these books that were supposed to recognize from the gold letters on the binding. But what was wild was on the shelf was this picture, a picture frame turned backwards. They were nice enough to give me 90 minutes of time because we really wanted to just like grapple and connect and about like, I don't know, 50, 55 minutes into our time together, they reached back and they turned the picture frame around and there was like a little black child in the picture frame. <laughs> and so like, of course I'm like, first of all, what, why are they turning the thing around right now? And then I'm like, who is this in their picture, right? And this was like um, a grandbaby. I said to them, like, why is your picture frame turned around? And they said, because my colleagues essentially are like so racist that every time they've come into my office, and this is like somebody who had all kinds of community respect, community kavod, like super well known of a very esteemed foundation, like one would think they have, should have all the confidence, kind of all the things that they need. And they kept this picture turned around because they had become sort of weathered and fatigued and worn by the racist reaction of their colleagues when they would see the picture of their black grandbaby. I appreciate that in general, like the Jewish community in the U.S. has done a pretty lousy job of just being inclusive in a lot of ways. And some of it is, just, some of it is about how Jewish tradition has been expressed in a U.S. context uh, where stratification is our cultural norm, 
right? So like, how do you assimilate? You plug into the stratification and you participate, right? Without interrogation in that moment. And then here we are X number of years later, having to take a very serious look at like the impact of our actions and the harm we continue to cause as it relates to racism. But the other thing is like, I do think there's something uniquely, and um, I use this word in a a presentation I gave in this context and it feels right. Like I do think there's something that feels uniquely trafe about blackness to Jews in the US and that sort of sense of being uniquely like impure and dirty comes from the deep, deep sense of anti-black institutionalized racism in this country. Mm. And so many in this country who, um, particularly for Jews who like grew up in environments where because of anti-Semitism, um, they were very, they were environments that had just a lot of Jews in them and like a, a safe Jewish community. So many for, for a certain generation, like their exposure to black folks has been through media, through racist depictions of black people, through having um, black and brown folks in roles. Um, um, we call them essential workers now, but like, um, you know, sometimes they would be like a maid or a servant or a gardener or a childcare provider. And that was just the story of a lot of people in the United States who fell into a context of racism. So the last thing I want to say about the beyond like blackness in some ways being perceived as trafe in our community is we have to decide to situate ourselves as multiracial, not only because that's who we are, but it provides an antidote to the anti-blackness that is so intensely part of the U.S. culture, the anti-brownness. And in doing that, we also get to embrace language like racism and race. Um, We get to help folks understand that it is our context that is intensely racist. And then people adopt racist behaviors, but they can also unadopt racist behaviors. So I want to invite everybody to sort of like, if you bristle or if you get fragile or if like when you hear the term racist, like you just imagine people in coned hoods and white schmatas, like doing things in ways that feel just like violent and vile, that we're not talking about that. And that is not you. We are the people perpetuating the systems. And so we get to be the people to interrupt those systems. And like, how lucky are we? So in the spirit of interrupting systems, I want to revisit what you brought up about learning our history, um, our American history, our American Jewish history. Um, I learned at some point growing up that the name of the first talkie, and that's the way it was told to me, the first talkie, the first movie that had like people talking to each other was the jazz singer. It was like a trivia. I don't know why we learned that in history class, but that's a thing that we were told. Um, did not know what it was about. Um, so that was step one. Step two was at some point I learned, oh my gosh, the jazz singer is like real Jewish. It is The, the plot literally revolves around a main character in 1920s America, sort of straddling the world of being an immigrant and um, being a cantor for a synagogue and also being a popular singer. Um, and it culminates, I kid you not, in this main character singing Kol Nidre. The, the the declaration like this is the first thing that that is a talkie in Hollywood and so that was cool and I was like wow that's amazing and then the third step in this journey is that I realized that the main actor in this Al Jolson is in many ways like the forefather of blackface and this movie itself has him using blackface extensively right and it's really screwed up and 
I don't think most Jews, white Jews or otherwise, when they think about blackface, which I think most of us, God willing, understand the incredible harm that blackface has done for all sorts of reasons. Right. But I don't think most people think about that and say, oh my gosh, as a Jew, there is a specific relationship I have to this as one of the most prominent people in this universe being not only was out, I mean, he was Jewish. Everybody knew he was Jewish. He was singing Kol Nidre in the first talking movie of all time. Right. And it is stunning to me that we, that we don't reckon with that. And, um, and once again, it's not just for the purpose of self, self-flagellation, but I just want to be able to own simultaneously that we have been missing huge numbers, the 12 to 15% number. We've, we've been missing huge numbers of Jews of color who are in our midst and we've been ignoring and marginalizing. Right. And we've been missing the problematic folks that are white Jews that have been right there in front of us ready for us to confront and to because we can learn Torah by inversion, right? Like we can we can look at something like Al Jolson and learn the opposite. Right. That's something we do with Jewish texts a lot, especially in non-Orthodox spaces. I think that's it's you know it's a common thing to be like, okay, here's a text. We don't like it. We should learn the opposite message. Right. Um so that that's that's more of a rant than a question, but I wanted to bring it up because I do think it ties to the questions you've alluded to about how we count and right. who we count right. and and why why people are counting more or less. And I know that there's been recent um, – and we talked with Yitz Jordan last week about some of this. We've, we've been talking about sort of which Jews count. And because I'm thinking on both of those fronts, you know, the Jews we've been missing right. um, who are Jews of color and the Jews we're missing who are white Jews who have been really actively perpetuating the problems, I was curious to hear – why it matters that we're talking about a size of the population that is 12, 15% and not, as some would argue, in the single digits. Right on. Um, first, I love the, like, the discussion of Al Jolson, and I want to like tie it to uh, Representative Dove Heinken, who also was captured in an image in blackface, and you can Google him and see that image. And I want to draw a distinction between the two, which is, I mean... It is also not lost on us that that the jazz singer was how Al Jolson and the Jewish community could enter mainstream film, right? And so in order to liberate that moment, he was required to be racist and marginalizing and oppressive. And that's a tactic of white supremacy and racism, which is to like force people who are marginalized to marginalize others for their own liberation and their own opportunity. And what a jam for him to be in in that moment. We get to be historically critical 100%, but this is like that moment of evolution where like we have to make, we are presented with dilemmas. We hope we have enough information to see the bigger picture. Sometimes we don't, sometimes there's a, a cost to, to being upwardly mobile or advancing in some region. And like, that's the dynamic of marginalization is we let someone else go a little bit forward, but they got to make sure they squash somebody down at the same time. And that's how we keep social order in the United States. And so that's what that moment is about. Fast forward a bunch of years to Representative Doug Heinken wearing an Afro and blackface to a Purim party, I believe, um, was the context. And in, in a moment where he had the benefit of knowing the history of the jazz singer, right? He had the benefit of knowing the history of racism and racism in this country and chose to reinforce like the most vile racist stereotypes of black folks uh, for the celebration of one of our holidays. 
And so I also think like Al Jolson presents this really important moment in U.S. history for Jews. Um, and each, we're all going to be presented with moments like that where we have an opportunity to move up and we may or may not know we're squashing somebody down in the meantime. Those moments are different than we have when, when we have knowledge and consciousness and we choose to be vile and inappropriate for the sake of entertainment, for um, revelry, for celebration, without care for who we're squashing down. I loved you bringing that up. Why does it count that we count? I mean, why does it matter? I mean, we have embedded into our Jewish history these tools of counting. And they have not been set up only to account for the Jewish people, but they've also, and from my perspective, given the history of the Jews, given the Jews as a people of, of, of millennia, a tool for understanding if we are counting people, then the parallel, of course, is that we're missing or not counting other people. So one of the importances of counting is not only the counting, but recognizing who we're not counting. Some of you know, in terms of my own work, like I have affinity for Bamid Bar, the book of numbers, um, and the history of counting Jews um, in, 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 the ch- in the chapters of the 20s. Um, and in there is the, is the actual technical moment when we start to count Jewish women as part of the Jewish people. So the other thing I think that's really important just technically about counting is it gives us the tool to become inclusive in a context where we have been historically exclusive. Why does it matter in a contemporary moment? Because we are literally operating a Jewish communal ecosystem of organizations, entities, synagogues, day schools, from a data ill-informed platform. And it's become so sort of um, passive and like the absence of using the data that the outcome is a lack of excellence from my perspective in terms of expression of Jewish community life program and opportunities. And I'll get like a little bit more granular about that. When you don't use the data about who is in your community to inform the work that you do, the work that you are expressing then reinforces history versus contemporary needs and what we're planning for in the future. If we are, if you look at like so many boards, Uh, decision-making bodies, sphere of influence in the Jewish Jewish community, there are just a paucity of Jews of color or people of color in those spaces. And so if those who have been imbued with the power of decision-making don't use the data to inform the decisions they're making, they continue to make decisions that only serve a margin of the community. And to circle back to a point that was raised up earlier, then if you think about the fact that every next every day, more and more babies are born in the Jewish community who are racially and ethnically diverse within a context of the United States, where by 2042, 2043, 44, will be 50% people of color. We're already 20% Latinx. Like if we're not thinking, and then if we um, appreciate again, like of course we marry in ways or partner in ways or build family in ways that cross racial boundaries, if we're not thinking all about all of that, all we're going to do is continue to create programs, efforts, entities that are a reflection of the past and not a reflection of the current and in the future. And the cost of that is really clear. Like it's like domestic Kalal Yisrael, like the, the, the community of, of Jews. Like we are literally going to create a situation where the organizations, the efforts, the entities, the leaders are all white 
and the Jewish community is outside of the Jewish community, kind of just in the general larger U.S., which is multiracial, multi-faith, diverse, and welcoming of the diversity of who we are as a Jewish people. There's an interesting irony in there, which is like, it's not that there aren't Jews of color in Jewish organizations. We are everywhere. We're not in Jewish organizations because something Dan said earlier, because there are racist headwinds blowing us away. That doesn't mean Jews of color don't exist. It means that we get to live Jewish life outside of the Jewish community. That's both beautiful. And I think there's a cost to that for the Jewish community. It's also related to something that we talk about on Judaism Unbound all the time, that there's this whole bunch of people that are out there in the world living their Jewish lives and the the leadership doesn't see them. That's and right. at least with the Ashkenazi Jews, the, they, they see that they, they, they wish they would come to the institutions with the, with the Jews of color. They, they might not even, you know, see them. And I guess my question is, how does change happen? How do you think change like this happens? And, and very specifically, what is the Jews of Color Initiative and or the various organizations that you support or that you network? Like, what are they doing to to sort of make the situation different because I I you know I, I've been trying to make this connection a little bit like I'm much more familiar with the LGBTQ world I'm on the board of Svara and I've been thinking about this a, a lot and there's some organizations and that are for LGBTQ Jews and their orientation is really to say hey organizations let us in you know and there've been great strides there uh, there there are LGBTQ rabbis being ordained you know et cetera et cetera. And also there was all these LGBTQ synagogues that were created that were basically spaces that were saying, eh, forget about you, we're creating our own spaces, you know, and, and that's also happened in other dimensions in the LGBTQ world in Svara as a yeshiva that's kind of based on the LGBTQ experience, you know, mm -hmm. and so right. I guess my question is like, could you give us a sense of the landscape a little bit about what's out there, what are different people trying to do, but also how do they fall in with these various levers that might be pulled in, in terms of, you know, one yeah. is like openness, trying to get the organization to be more right. open. And the other is right. almost like you could look at it in two ways. One is that by being off on our own for a while, we generate power. That's a lot of, of organizing is about that. And also, and I think this is really what's happened in the LGBTQ world, is that what's being created is so awesome that the, you know, the straight people want to come, you know, and like it, it's the other, it, it becomes the opposite. It's like, That's we're right. not trying to get into your world anymore. We're trying to keep you out of our world. You know, it's like, there's too many of you trying to come to our world, right? So how do you, you know, so maybe that could be a strategy. Well, I love that. I mean, and I love you, like the parallel with the LGBTQ world and Savara. So there was this moment, this one day in one of my, my Jewish communal work lives where I was um, in my office and I was watching video from a bar mitzvah that happened to be at an all black synagogue where everybody in this, in this video was black. And a colleague passed by my office and you know, like on the cartoons when like Roadrunner or something is going really fast and then they hit the brakes and there's like a screech um, and smoke puffs up. It was as if this colleague like had hit their screech and the smoke puffed up in this very traditional communal organizational space. And they stop and they said in this way that have like a tinge of dirty, what is that? Like, not who is that, where are they, what's the simcha, the celebration, the holiday, like the celebration that's going on. That was not the question. The question is, what, what is that? And so, like, right on, Dan, like, may everybody want to come to all of our synagogues that, like, support our racial, ethnic, 
orientational experience out there. Like I hope they're like lined up for Shabbat services, particularly on Saturday mornings. But like, I also worry in the deep way, like the tinge of race in this country and racism, um, again, like has this edge to it that makes it particularly difficult for white folks to grapple with. Um, and to really kind of go deep on what it means to own the harm of racism and therefore what it means to actually move through the spaces of like repair and then from repair to like reimagination, right? I hope that the next time a colleague passes by my office and sees a video like that, they say like, I want to go Davin. Can you take me there for, for Shabbat services? Like that's the right response. Um, so if you imagine the work of the movement and when we started the initiative, like nobody thought we were going to be part of a movement. Like we thought we were going to be part of some like small organization, putting our head down, kind of grinding out the work. And we found ourselves in this amazing role with a, a, with a number of community partners um, that were somehow part of this movement um, within this larger context of the U.S. Maybe hopefully finally coming to terms with our, uh, the, our racist roots. So we have organizations in this country that are focused on, first of all, we have one organization, we have only one organization in this country that offers direct service to Jews of color, and that's Dimensions, led by like my amazing colleague, Yavila McCoy. We have um, Amud, Jews of Color Torah Academy, which is the first organization in the nation where um, it's Jewish education for Jews of color, by Jews of color, teaching Torah, history, Hebrew. Um, we have organizations that are regionally focused, like that are trying to gather up, gather up the family out there, the colleagues out there, the community out there, and create partnerships like Edot, the Midwest Jewish Diversity Project, run Shouts by our to Wisconsin. My that's home right, state. Our, our our amazing colleague Shahana McKinney. Um, we are in a position where we have organizations run by Jews of color that don't have to focus on diversity training. Right, so we're like just at the edge of starting to mature the field a tiny, tiny bit, where the organizations don't all have to focus on diversity education, but get to focus on the other layers of work that are part of passion projects, spiritual projects, wellness projects in the Jewish community, like Mitsui Collective, run by our colleague Yoshi Silverstein, um, which is all about like building resilient community around nature, wellness, and embodied justice through a Jewish lens focused on Jews of color. We have Jewish multiracial network this amazing organization where they focus on capacity development and community development and social capital. And what's one thing that's unique about Jewish multiracial network is they have a strong partnership and focus on the observant community, the modern Orthodox community. We have Black Yids Matter, right? Um, an organization, um, a project that's for Black Jews, by Black Jews. They brought you the Kawanzaka Guide. They brought you the Juneteenth Shabbat. Right. And so the other thing I want to say is that when we are truly multiracial, like our expressions of Jewish life, Jewish ceremony, Jewish services will look and feel different. We have to be welcoming of those expressions, even if they might seem new, maybe even a little unfamiliar to us. I mean, you raised up Safara and like Rabbi Benet and like Rabbi Benet's whole theory about the crash, right? Like we have been reinventing Judaism for 5,000 years. Right. And so we're really, really good at it. And we have a really long track record that says we're going to be okay. <laughs> right. We're going to be okay. And if we could just rely on what we know about our own history in that way, it might reassure us that we'll be fine. Um, and we need to be able to take a leap of faith in that way. And I mean, our history tells us we'll be okay. I just 
want to say thank you. This has been an incredible conversation. Um, and to everybody listening, just really, we encourage you to head to the Jews of Color Initiative website, jewsofcolorinitiative.org. Learn how you might be able to plug in, learn how you can support. There's, of course, a support area of the site. Thank you, Alana, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Oh, this was just so great. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Lex. Um, not only thank you for your interest in, in Jews of Color and amplifying and raising up our voices, but thanks for letting us talk stories around history, um, Torah, text, keeping our community strong and vibrant. Like these are the conversations we should be having and and and, and amplifying the experiences of Jews of Color just one pathway. Um, but it gives us a, a peek into what we can do to make sure that all groups from all backgrounds in Jewish life get to be part of the center. And I'm really excited about that. So thank you. Absolutely. And one more thank you to send out. Thank you, of course, to all of you who are listening. We really appreciate you tuning in and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. Uh, we want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. Uh, there's a variety of ways for you to do that. And you can start by heading to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Uh, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com, or our other website, JewishLive.org. Uh, you can head to our Twitter feed, which is at Judaism Unbound. And you can also hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. The last request we'd like to make is that we really deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you can send our way. And you can do that on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.